What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Ship Podcast. We're going to call this uh, Heritage Volume 4. Like the, <laughs> I, I was going back and forth about where this would fit. Uh, maybe a spin the yarn, but I think it's too long. And I, like it's Heritage stuff, but it's also like Initiation Chronicle stuff. And um, so I'm just going to call it a Heritage episode because it is, it is tied into Heritage quite a bit. And I think... I think junior sailors will enjoy this just as much as the chiefs do just for awareness sake. Um, I think it's really important. I think it's important for transparency. Uh, and I think it's important for, uh, the chiefs, especially to know exactly where they came from. But, uh, what I'm talking about here is a document called a tradition of change. Uh, it's on the website. Uh, if you go to the resources section, I will link it in the description and, and uh, you can just Google it too. Uh, it's available uh, widely on the internet if you're looking for it. But I don't think, and I know there are messes out there that for sure uh, push this out to the new selectees to make sure that they are aware of it. But um, it's not as widely known, especially amongst the active chiefs mess that's been around for a while. Um, I just this year had a had a senior chief basically. Um, send the selects on a, a mission to go find the history of the charge book. And he, the answer he was looking for was what you'd find on goat locker, which is a fairy tale. Um, what I want to accomplish by, by pushing this out there is just, just educate you on reality and um, the understanding that some of that, like it, it's a much more human story and some of it wasn't good. Like <laughs> some of it was extremely negative. Um, I always go back to, uh, a quote from, um, I believe it's Mick Pond Hurt. Let me check. In lieu of ever having a sponsor, I've basically created my own. If you want to support us, go to dgutsapparel.com. Don't give up the ship apparel. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Dguts Apparel. Uh, it's Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. I went out of my way to create some really awesome stuff that I think you'll really enjoy. And it's some stuff that I think you'll actually wear. Uh, I hate all the stuff in the Navy Exchange section. I hate a lot of the stuff I see on social media where some somebody's side hustle is creating like nauseating gear that no one actually wants except for like crusty old retirees, which I'm about to be. So I don't know if I should uh, talk smack, but anyway, uh, go check it out. Dgutsapparel.com. If you want to support us, that's the best way to do it. And I would really appreciate it. Yeah. So it's Mick Ponhagen. Uh, I'm terrible. <laughs> He's talking about traditions. He was speaking at a Naval Academy commencements and he was asked a question about what's the difference between a good and bad tradition. Uh, and his answer was, there are no bad tra traditions. By their very nature, naval traditions can only be good. That is why they are preserved and ultimately classified as traditions for their goodness. I, and then this is kind of an internal dialogue. He's saying, I knew, of course, what point the midshipman was making. So I quickly acknowledged that traditions can be perverted or abused. Bad habits can be labeled tradition by the ignorant. The acid test is a simple one. If it is inconsistent with our core values, it is either not a naval tradition or it is not being practiced correctly. So the reason I bring that up is is when people are looking at the season, even nowadays, sailors point at it and they in their um, in their expert analysis, having never experienced it and not fully understanding what it is, uh, they think it's still all hazing and shenanigans and and nothing productive happens and there's no actual leadership development or whatever. Um, the difference between that and it being this time-honored tradition that's like almost wholly in the 
uh, in the realm of the chief's mess. And it's this thing that where they, you know, they go in as first classes and they come out as these fully developed deck plate leaders that are ready to be chiefs. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, it's certainly a lot more complex than, than it's commonly given credit for, I guess as any credit's probably the wrong word. It's like, then it's, it's analyzed as right. Where, people either think it's one thing or the other and it's it falls somewhere on a on a spectrum of uh both good and bad uh and i and i've documented some of that on on previous podcasts and i'll I'll try to link some of those in the description as well but one of them is uh the rejected episode i did with with andrew who now does the foundations episodes um there's a lot of negative experiences out there because what i evaluate to be unqualified leaders, undereducated leaders, just ill-equipped leaders that are in charge of running a leadership development mechanism. And, you know, they inevitably screw that up. Um, but on the on the other side of it, there's been some really great ones. I've been part of seasons and especially final nights, um, but just the, the, the events that happened during the season where um, they you just you there's a, a way when it's done correctly where you create these just these environments um, and these moments that I, I don't know how you would create them any other way. Uh, and it induces vulnerability and development and um, like maturing, like a maturation process that I don't know how you create any other way. It's it's really interesting. Um, it's fun to explore and discuss. And I'm always open to do that. But for today, I'm going to focus on the history of this process to because I want to provide the transparency, like I said, but I want to provide a little more clarity for people on how we got to where we are. Um, I think that's a really important part of it, too, where I don't think people really understand how Chiefs Initiation was even like it, how it even came to be. And it, it hasn't been around as long as Chiefs have. Uh, and that's one of the most interesting things that I think people miss out on. But uh, without, I mean, I'm five minutes in, and <laughs> it's been just my dialogue. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to jump into actually the, the actual analysis of a tradition of change, which again, it's on the website. I highly, highly recommend digesting this document when you get a chance. It's by uh, now retired IT Master Chief James Lucci. He worked at Navy History and Heritage Command when Mick Pond Stevens commissioned him to uh, put this doc- like do the research and compile all the all the references and then put this document uh, itself together. Um, but basically, the premise here is everything you think you know about chief's initiation is a lie. And I'm and I'm looking at the chief's mess when I say this primarily, um, because what junior sailors and officers think they know about chief's initiation, they got they get from us. Right. Um, and the, you know, the cover of the Navy Times when we misstep. And uh, and that's about it. Um, so, yeah, I've talked to some first classes that find some documents laying around the shop and they just have a hard time wrapping their mind around why uh any of or why or how any of the things that they find could possibly be productive. And sometimes it's because they're not. And sometimes it's because they just don't have the clarity. And I aim to provide some of that. So uh, Chief's Heritage is the foundation on which our identity is built, right? We should know it. We should be very, very aware of that heritage and particularly the chief's initiation history um, because it's critical that you you know it so you can effectively develop chiefs were charged with building um if you don't know that this is the actual 
foundation on which our entire operation here is built, our entire identity as chiefs and as a chief's mess, then you can't effectively develop chiefs. And so that's that's why I wanted to do this podcast. And that's why I, I consistently encourage people to review this document and be very, like I, I would pr- get it printed out the print shop and bound up and hand to every single chief select and every single chief in your, in your mess if they're not aware of it. I would have a stack of these things in a locker because it's that it's that important and it's that valuable. Um, so the background here is I used to be you like <laughs> I've stood in front of groups of chiefs uh, and chief selects and regurgitated a lie. I told that and I have a picture of me doing this right like that. I used to really I thought it was a cool picture and I really treasured the the photo of that moment where I was standing in front of this group of chief selects and delivering this this fabricated speech about the history of the charge book. And I told them that it was from a time of where uh you know, ships where the library was a space and leaders had their sailors go around and get charges from leaders like they didn't have like a, a professional library to draw on and that the initiation process had a deep and long basis in tradition overall, like basically all of our history. And I was extremely pissed off when I found out that was all false. If you haven't read a tradition of change, you need to immediately. It sheds so much light on who we are and where we come from on why things happen the way that they do and how we need to course correct going forward. Again, the link is in the show notes and on the website under resources. Go check it out. Um, So the document itself, a tradition of change. In 2015, McPond Stevens commissioned a study of the history of chief's initiation by the Navy History and Heritage Command. Uh, some of this was a response to criticism about how he was trying to uh, professionalize and, and change things about CPO 365 um, and how he he basically said he like sundowned the term initiation or induction or what all the other ones. And they were calling it phase two at the time. And um, there's a huge backlash about you're just murdering tradition. Blah. Like think Navy Times comment section where all the old crusty retired guys are flipping out. There's a huge backlash. And so he wanted to address that. And so he commissioned James Lucci uh, at the Navy History and Heritage Command to create this document. And in doing so, he discovered some shocking course altering facts, which I'm going to get into. Um, Talking about tradition, uh, I think it's worth discussing what a tradition actually is. Uh, And I mentioned that the McPon Hagen quote already, so I'm not going to rehash that. But um, I was a chief when McPond Stevens decided to sundown an induction, which is what he said, and and saw and felt that backlash. Uh, and it, like no one was really talking about it, like no authority on the topic was discussing why he did those things uh, in, in with this type of historical context. Um, and it turns out we didn't even know our own heritage that we were decrying, like being sullied and taken away from us. Uh, and that's criminal. Um, and so like revisiting what I said earlier about what Mick Ponhaven Hagen described as a tradition and how those things are implemented, the change makes a lot more sense because uh, for a very long time, and you could argue to this day in certain ways, the tradition is not being practiced correctly, which is part of that acid test. So why change? Mick Pond Stevens was harshly criticized, as I mentioned. When he proposed the, the needed changes, you all you all know how I, feel, how I feel about a lot of the ways in which we choose misguidedly to train chiefs. However, in explaining the reason for this document, 
um, Mikpon Hurt in his, there's a couple uh, prior Mikpons that explained um, in some like introductions or, you know, forewords or whatever, uh, saying, and I quote, initiation, induction, transition, CPO 365, there's just no denying the emotional reaction of some chief petty officers to changing any aspect of a sailor's traditional transition to the CPO mess. Often these reactions arise from not fully understanding the reason and need for the change. Uh, I passionately agree with that. Um, I don't think we as a collective chiefs mess understand that change is needed on the scale that it is. I'm starting to feel that more of us individually feel a need for that change, but as a, as a collective are unwilling to express it for fear of, of being ostracized or repercussions or whatever. But uh, I, I also think the defense of needing that change is generally rooted in ignorance. Like the, we need to know the actual history and we need to use that as a, as a, a lens in which to view what we're doing right now in order to identify the weak spots that, that need to be shored up. Um, so I'm going to start, start at the very beginning, uh, 1893 to 1903, right? As far as we know, based on the research that they did, CPO initiations began around the 50s and 60s, as in 1950 to 1960. We don't know the exact date, as little is documented. What we do know is it didn't start in 1893. There was a very large gap. Uh, and I'm going to read a quote from the document itself. On March 3rd, 1893, U.S. Navy Circular Number 1 announced the establishment of the Chief Petty Officer Classification, effective April 1st, 1893, hence the Chief's birthday every year, which I, you know, I'm sure you all get a kick out of it being on April Fool's Day. <laughs> so do I. Today, April 1st, 1893, is commemorated with celebrations, ceremonies, and khaki balls. However, the appointment of the first Chief Petty Officers was not a major event of the day. The first Chief Petty Officers of 1893 were not immediately elevated to a higher enlisted status as a result of their appointments. In fact, there is no mention of the establishment of the CPO ratings in the Secretary of the Navy's annual reports to the U.S. Congress in 1893 or 1894. Uh, on April 1st, 1893, nine ratings were moved up into the Chief Petty Officer classification. Eight of these ratings had previously been first class ratings, and the men were already wearing what had become the chief petty officer uniform. Three of the first class petty officer ratings had official titles of chief boatswain's mate, chief quartermaster, chief gunner's mate since 1885. They retained their titles when they became chief petty officers. Nothing had changed. Uh, the other ratings, which apothecary, so think hospital corpsman, but a long, long time ago, uh, yeoman, machinist, and bandmaster also retained the same titles. They'd probably be like a precursor to a, a pharmacist mate, actually, the apothecary thing. But it's a they're all they all kind of feed into that. Um, they also the, the yeoman, machinist, mate, bandmaster also retained the same titles uh, they had used as first class petty officers. However, master at arms became chief master at arms. After April 1st, 1893, chief, first, and second class petty officers shared the same mess. Think about that one for a second. They shared the same mess. Uh, for nearly 10 years, chief petty officers continued to mess and berth with first and second class petty officers. In 1902, a change to the 1900 U.S. Navy regulations formally established a separate mess for chief petty officers. So I, I think it's really important to note that during that time, they continued to mess together. You could argue some of that was just based on availability of space and all this other crap. But apparently in 1902, they just snapped their fingers like Thanos and made it a, a separate thing. So I think that sort of debunks that argument. But what I think is super interesting about that is one of the things that I talk to people a lot about 
is this is this artificial separation that we've created apparently starting um, in 1902. So uh, like I think a lot of that creates a distrust and a, a skepticism of the chief's mess um, because we're the, we're other we're different we're separate we're they and them and whatever in the opinion of the lower enlisted where in other services not that they don't have their own problems and not that there isn't maybe some distrust or whatever but it's there's not as much separation um, they eat together they uh, I'm pretty sure they birth together as well um, and I've heard stories about, you know, like senior Marine Corps NCOs on a ship being uh, not happy that they have to birth separately just because they're a gunny or um, like just recently when I interviewed that corpsman um, that where the all the senior NCOs were making sure the juniors ate first. And and I mean, you'd get talked to if you ate early instead of the in front of the juniors. Um, so that's a very different outlook to what we we do in the Navy and on ships. Um, so I think that it's a really little important nugget there. Um, so moving on, 1904 to 1945, uh, this section is called Swim Call and Some Beer. Uh, when World War One ended, if not all of the well, most, if not all of the original 1893 chief petty officers had left to retire from the Navy. The new generation of chiefs had no memories of coexisting with subordinate petty officers. So that's where you see the separation even become like become even more important and kind of compound the problem. The chief petty officer mess and quarters were firmly established at sea and shore. Chief petty officers were the highest paid enlisted men in the Navy. The status of chief petty officers had also been elevated. CPOs enjoyed privileges such as open gangway liberty, not being required to stand personnel inspections prior to going on liberty, and had better accommodations while traveling on official business. Uh, chiefs also had better living quarters and better food than the rest of the enlisted crew. <laughs> so you see this sharp rise in um, the separation and the the you almost create uh, like an adversarial relationship out of like envy and um, the the superiority complex that is built by putting that structure around these uh, now elevated enlisted people. Uh, Chief Petty Officer's status continued to improve during the years between the World Wars. In 1929, Chief Aviation pilots were authorized to wear the same aviation summer khaki working uniform as a naval aviator officer. In 1930, Chief Petty Officers were required to wear rating badges with the eagle and the specialty mark made from silver bullion thread on their dress blue uniforms. Bullion rating badges were not authorized for men below chief petty officer. The distinction distinction between chief petty officers and all other enlisted men continued to grow. By 1941, all chief petty officers and officers were authorized to wear khaki working uniforms. So now we look different. <laughs> However, dungarees still remain part of the CPOC bag. I doubt anybody was wearing them. Um, prior to World War II, chief petty officers were serving as chief of the boat on submarines and as the leading chief on surface ships. On some battleships, the leading chief petty officers lived in staterooms. Imagine having a stateroom. I don't even have an office or a parking spot right now. Um, so this is a quote. They, they had a lot of cool like personal stories where they picked a, like a, somebody that had been in the military during that time, whether through research or interview, and they, and they kind of share parts of their story. So this is one of those. Albert Dempster joined the Navy in 19, January 1940 for six years. After boot camp and yeoman school, he volunteered for submarine duty. Upon completion of submarine school, he was assigned to a post-World War I era S-boat, USS S-43, 
S43 is home ported in Coco Solo Canal Zone. Uh, Dempster remained in the canal zone until 1943 when he was assigned to USS Creval SS-291 as a yeoman first class. Dempster made four war patrols on Creval. Uh, he and another first class petty officer were advanced to chief during a war patrol in 1943. There was no CPO initiation while they were underway in the South China Sea. When Creval returned to Fremantle, Australia, the two new chiefs were initiated and st- here we here we go. Their initiation consisted of being thrown over the side of the submarine, following by drinking at a local bar. The end. Dempster remained in the Navy after the war and retired as a chief yeoman in 1960. So it's effectively like drinking your your fish or drinking your pin of whatever flavor. Right. I think divers do it. I think EOD guys probably do it. Seals probably do. It. I don't know. Like, I'm sure a bunch of people do it. Um on submarines, it's it's kind of a it's a quick joke. As soon as somebody gets pinned, if we're in port or about to be in port, especially if it's a Liberty port, but I mean, it kind of doesn't matter. Um, they're like, hey, where are we drinking your fish? Like that's like the plan is like to go out. You know, you drop your your pin into the into a a beer and then chug it, and then it, it like you you open your mouth. It's it's a there's a scene in Band of Brothers where they drink their jump wings. It's that. It's an exact replica of that. So if you haven't seen that, that's a an example you could see of like a, a Hollywood depiction of that where it's that's all it is and it's like he's like grinning and he's got his jump wings on his teeth. Um that's all it was. They threw him overboard, had a good laugh and then went out and drank drank their anchors effectively. Um and then that was that's a wrap. He's a fully fledged uh, and vested member of the chief's mess. Um, so moving on to 1946 to 1953, chief petty officer initiations may have taken place prior to World War II. However, it wasn't until after the war that they became more prominent and common. Peacetime military, you got more time to do stuff, right? So CPO initiations, as they were referred to at the time, were simply a way to welcome a new chief petty officer into the mess. The events were not secret, but were generally confined behind the doors of CPO mess, and that's probably because there was alcohol involved. Uh, The earliest record of CPO initiations in the U.S. Navy photographs archives consists of two photographs of a female chief storekeeper initiation circa 1948. Uh, The chief petty officers in the photograph and the location are not identified. Initiations ashore generally took place in a CPO club on base. CPO clubs were very common and well patronized through the early 1970s. Initiations at CPO clubs generally included the consumption of alcohol by both the participants and the observers. Another common trend seen in photographs both afloat and ashore was cigars. Photographs. I'm looking at uh, my sailors and sticks people. I'll have to tag him in this. Uh, photographs from early initiations often depict genuine, air quotes, chief petty officers enjoying a cigar while observing initiation events. Genuine is a term that um, I didn't actually hear it used until I was probably maybe like three or four years into being a chief where they started to uh, refer to like the the chiefs that were running the season. Uh, as genuine chief petty officers or august chief petty officers. And then um, the chief selects were obviously not. Uh, and But that term wasn't, I, I either hadn't been exposed to it yet or it wasn't around um, prior to that when I made, I made chief in 2011. Um, there are other official Navy photographs dating from the mid-1950s. And so that, let me, sorry, let me go back. Um, the genuine term is you'll still hear it because some people just can't let it go, but it's, 
it's kind of been uh retired as well like just the the it's because it's it's childish it's it's a immature thing to like uh create this stupid it's like a almost like a fraternity thing and i mean that in a negative way like a college frat rushing thing not like a like a some kind of um professional like intellectually superior or or mature fraternity for like uh what should be the structure built around cheap petty officers but anyway the term is supposed to be gone um but it still kind of lingers a little bit so there are other official Navy photographs dating for the mid-1950s that show new chief petty officers in wash khaki or dress uniforms participating in various events, such as eating their first meal in the CPO mess from a wooden trough, performing skits, uh, singing songs, and being tossed into a swimming pool. The initiations that took place aboard a ship were always alcohol-free. <laughs> I wonder if that's true. <laughs> like, they probably just couldn't find record of somebody getting in trouble for it, but... In 1953, Life magazine published an article about the Navy that mentioned CPO initiations and included a color photo of boot chiefs eating, which just means chief selects or new chiefs, um, eating from wooden troughs with large metal spoons. Uh, And when you hear trough, think like a little wooden trough that looks like something a pig would eat out of. Uh, with large metal spoons, then there's pictures in the in the actual reference. The article referred to CPO initiations as induction. So now we're on to 1954 to 1959. In the post-World War II years, first-class petty officers were only required to be recommended by their commanding officer and a past chief petty officer's examination for the rating in order to be promoted to chief. Uh, There were no selection boards back then, so their examination score and evaluation marks were calculated to create a final multiple. And the final multiple established the CPO candidate's position on the promotion list to chief petty officer. Selection to chief was based on the service member's position on the list and the number of available quotas. Um, so I think this is kind of like how the army does it, or at least they used to do it. I saw friends they, where people would get promoted throughout the year. So the process had been in place since the turn of the century. The chief's exam was given twice a year at the time. The exams were sent back to bupers to be scored. Uh, the advanced results were mailed by bupers to the ships and shore installations, and the results were often posted on, on bulletin boards outside the base or ship's admin office. A posted advancement list was the way that most sailors found out that they were selected for chief. CPO promotion lists promulgated by naval messages did not become common until the late 1960s. Uh, So this is a quote. Um, There was no frocking in those days, and chief petty officers were promoted in monthly increments through the early 1970s. As a result, CPO initiations were often held monthly during most of the year. Sailors often only had to wait a few weeks before being promoted, especially if they were advanced in the first increment. So, I mean, they didn't have time to run a six-week season every five minutes because people were being promoted all throughout the year based on where they were selected. Um, so think like they weren't frocking people. They were waiting until your pay date to, to actually promote you. Um, and they would do like a quick CPO, CPO initiation and then pinning in the 1940s and 1950s. There was no CPO season. As we know it today, there was no activities such as fundraising, organized car washes, which they, I mean, those are kind of gone now you'll see cpoas doing it in order to pay for the season but chief selects aren't supposed to be doing that stuff anymore anyway or group physical training there was no professional training cpo charge books did not exist the most common event was the first class petty officers selected for chief were sometimes brought into the cpo mess and humorously harassed Uh, i don't know how humorously how humorous they thought it was but they were harassed They were often charged to get coffee for genuine chiefs. Uh, Some have reported to have been tasked to wash their leading chief's car uh, 
or pick up the dry cleaning. However, for most, the main event from the time uh, they were selected until the time they were advanced was the day of the CPO initiation. So think uh, the final night or capstone event or whatever you want to call it. Also, I think it's interesting to note that um, the charge books didn't exist. This is the 40s and 50s. There was no such thing as a charge book, which is all the def- the definitive evidence you need that the fairy tale that is on Goat Locker about charge book history uh, was never true. I don't, I don't know that it's still up there because there like there is a link to this document, a tradition of change on GoatLocker.org, um, but. I don't know if the old uh, charge book history stuff is still there. I'd have to go look, but either way, it's not. If it is, it's not accurate. If it's gone, good, but because it's not accurate. (laughs) Uh, The initiations of the 1940s and 1950s were not the elaborate events that occur today. The initiations were usually overseen by the leading chief of the mess. Uh, At the time, there were no senior or master chiefs. That didn't happen until the late 50s, early 60s uh, in the Navy. So CPO initiations were not organized and varied from command to command. In the post-war years, uh, more women were being promoted to chief. At the time, women were not assigned to at-sea duty, so there was no effect on CPO initiations aboard ships. However, CPO initiations ashore that included women were sometimes adjusted to accommodate females. Women were often handled separately, but not always. And I don't know what they mean by accommodate. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what like what would change. It does not much changes nowadays. Uh, and they're always integrated, assuming there were, you know, you're, there are females that got promoted. But anyway, uh, after their initiation, there was no pinning ceremony since chief petty officers did not wear collar devices. Collar devices for CPOs were not authorized until 1959. Initially, all CPOs, E7 E9, wore the same collar devices because um, they just hadn't developed the actual, like, super chief, like senior chief and mass chief pins. The final event of CPO initiations often involved the new CPOs donning their new hats and raising mugs of beer in a toast to the Navy. Promotion to chief was commonly referred to as wearing the hat. Um, This is a Mick Pond Walker quote. As chief petty officer selectee, I was required to go through the time-honored tradition of initiation. The process was designed to challenge your worth by being subjected to verbal harassment, eating slop out of a trough, drinking copious amounts of alcoholic beverages and other demeaning events. When it was over, I couldn't have hit my rear end with the help of a 10 hand working party. Somehow I drove home, God help us. And Fran, who is his wife could smell me as soon as I got out of the car. She immediately cleaned me up and put me to bed. So yeah, not a lot of value there. It's just shenanigans. Um, Moving on to 1960 to 1973, this subsection is titled, Things Start to Get Messy, if they weren't already. Uh, In 1958, the Public Law 85, TAC 422, uh, interior communications people on submarines are going to hate me for saying it that way, established E8 and E9 pay grades for the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, The new super chiefs roles in the Navy were not clearly identified. Senior chiefs and mass chiefs billets were intended to be leadership positions for chief petty officers who remained in the Navy beyond 20 years of service. Some thought that E-8 and E-9 chiefs would replace warrant officers. The status and role of E-8 and E-9 chiefs took years to take hold and develop. From 1959 until 1961, all chief petty officers wore the same collar and cap devices, which we mentioned earlier. In 1961, senior chief and mass chief collar devices were authorized. 
all chiefs continued to wear the same cap device until 1969. Uh, in those days, it wasn't uncommon for senior chiefs and master chiefs to simply be referred to as chief, which, God, I wish we would bring that back. Um, especially like I have a lot of interactions where I'm just walking around and uh, somebody will, especially like Marines that are on base or whatever, but like just anybody that's far enough away with NW um, like rank devices. But like, people just say, well, oh, hey, how's it going, chief? Or good afternoon, chief. And they're like, oh, sorry, master chief. And it's like, yeah, whatever. We're all chiefs. And so it's like, I really wish that that was like the slang. It was just like when people would call me senior um, before I got promoted. Like, I wish that, that that was just a term where we were all just chief. Like, uh, it would be... I wish we could bring that back. I really like that. During the 1950s and early 1960s, boot chiefs, uh, which, you know, in this context is chiefs selectees. Uh, generally, nowadays, when you hear people say boot chief, they just mean like a chief that's in their first year as a chief. Generally went through their initiations wearing their new chief petty officer dress blue or khaki uniforms. God, that would suck. But dress blues are super expensive. I can't imagine they were cheap back then. Accoutrements were often added to the uniform that included boot camp canvas leggings and a sign stating, I am a boot chief. Boot chiefs were often seen wearing their combination cap backwards and or without a cap cover. Later in the mid-1960s, CPO selectees stopped wearing their uniforms during initiation. Thank God, because that had to be expensive. Initiations, and just disrespectful, initiations had become so messy that new CPO uniforms would be ruined if worn, because of course they would. It became common practice to direct boot chiefs to appear in silly costumes depicting a theme or character designated by their CPO mess. Most costumes were humorous designs intended to entertain the genuine chiefs on initiation day. CPO initiations began to evolve in the 1960s. Some of the rituals seen in the crossing the line ceremonies, such as eating distasteful concoctions of food, uh, products and drinking truth serum were adopted for CPO initiations. Some of the props used in crossing the line ceremonies, such as uh, stocks and ice-filled coffins began to be seen in CPO initiations. Characters like the judge, defense attorney, and sheriff became fixtures as CPO initiations essentially became mock trials or kangaroo courts. That's where you're going to see the charge book come in. And that's why it's called the charge book. And this will make sense in a second. Charge books also became more common. However, they were not the keepsakes that are seen today. CPO selectees were generally required to carry them and present them to any CPO requested to see it. This is where it gets weird. The most common charge book was made from a legal size Navy record book, which they still are with a green cover. Um, well, it's letter size nowadays. Um, CPO selectees were required to carry the books at all times. The books were often attached to a line or chain worn by the selectee. Genuine chief petty officers would sign the book and enter charges against the selectee to be evaluated by the judge on initiation day. That's why they're called charge books. Um, they charged them with some kind of infraction and then they had to answer for it on final night in the kangaroo court. Chief petty officers were expected to enter words of wisdom or humorous notes concerning fines to be paid on initiation day. However, it was very common for lewd and vulgar statements to be entered into the book desecration of the book by cigarette burns and smearing food or feces that means poop on pages were not uncommon the books were not kept in elegant boxes that we now call vessels and they are t as they are today um, after initiation the books were often discarded for obvious reasons due to their <laughs> vile smell and vulgar contents 
Uh, now we're moving on to 1974 to 1980. Uh, subsection is called Pushing the Envelope. Uh, and this is another like biographical section on uh, Dwayne Bushy, former McPond. So in 1974, Dwayne Bushy was selected for chief petty officer by the first CPO selection board, because now we have selection boards as of 1974. It uh, wasn't just the exam and evals. He was assigned to Aircraft Ferry Squadron 31, it's VRF 31, at Naval Air Station Norfolk. Under the old selection system, even though Bushy had been Sink Pack Fleet Shore Sailor of the Year, and had routinely scored high on Chiefs tests. Uh, he was not selected due to a small number of quotas. His rating, Aviation Electrician's Mate, AE, was overmanned, and the selection for Chief was based on final multiple, not overall performance. The change to the selection board process resulted in many sailors, like Bushy, being promoted based primarily on their performance. Bushy and another sailor, Don Payne, were the only ones selected for Chief in VRF 31. There was no formal training from the time they were notified until the day they were initiated in the CPO club at Naval Station Norfolk. And, and keep in mind, this is in the 70s now. From the time they were notified, they were constantly harassed by the squadron chiefs. They were also required to perform personal services, such as getting coffee and donuts, picking up laundry, and washing and filling their cars up with gas. Bushy had a charge book that was stolen a few days after he got it. Wasn't returned until a week before initiation. This is where, like, like I, I'm. This is the stuff that's hard to read, and and it's it's shameful. Um, the book had been spit on, ejaculated on, defecated on, and was full of profanity-ridden comments. After initiation, he threw the book in the trash. On the morning of initiation day. Bushy and the other selectee were required to dress up in tutus and ride tricycles while the squadron was at quarters. After quarters, they were put in the back of the truck and carried off to initiation. Within an hour of being uh, beginning initiation, he was drunk. He had been required to chug a pitcher of beer when he arrived and had chugged two more shortly thereafter. By the end of the day, he had puked two or three times. When initiation was over, there was a pinning ceremony. However, family and friends were not allowed to attend. Bushy recalled that the attitude was your family didn't come with your sea bag and had nothing to do with you making chief. <sighs> wow. The new chiefs were given a CPO combination cap and they recited the CPO creed. Oh, God. Um, it was slightly different back then. Um, but also like, yeah, sorry. This is just, it's been a while since I've read this and it's kind of rocking me a little bit just cause it's gross. Bushy doesn't remember anything more about initiation. At the end of the day, his wife, Sue was called to come pick him up at the CPO club. He was passed out drunk on the way home. He threw up in the car and on the front porch of their house. He slept for about 12 hours after he arrived home. Uh, over 50 new chiefs were initiated that day. Bushy didn't know any of them. Other than the sailor from his squadron, there was no interaction with the other selectees before or after initiation day. Um, <laughs> it gets worse if you can believe that. Like, I just, this, every time I read this, it's like hard to believe it's true. And it all, but it simultaneously makes me thankful that this document exists because people need to know this stuff because they need to understand why change is needed it's still needed there's a lot of improvements that need to be made um because we started in a really gross place 
Uh, this 1981 to 1990 section is titled Anything Goes. Beginning in the fall of 1980, after the Chiefs selection board results were released, the first CPO season began. Uh, so now we're into where it's once a year, selection boards, drop results, and then you have a, a CPO season. Most CPO selectees were assigned a sponsor and given a charge book. The sponsor either volunteered or was appointed by the command master chief. The sponsor's task was to provide support and guidance to the CPO selectee during CPO initiation day. There was little, if any, formal interaction between the CPO mess and the CPO selectee's spouse, which nowadays there, there is or at least should be. The CPO season of the 1980s did involve or did correction did not involve any formal training to prepare the selectees for advancement to chief petty officer. During the weeks before initiation, selectees were required to carry their charge books and present them to every chief within their command. The chief petty officers would sign the book, often leaving a comment or charge for the judge about a flaw in the selectee's behavior that would result in a fine on initiation day. CPO selectees were often tasked to provide personal services for genuine chiefs, such as serving breakfast and shining shoes. CPO selectees were often given a shopping list of things they were required to bring to initiation. The list contained items, not surprisingly, such as food, drinks to include alcohol, alcoholic and non-alcoholic, uh, and cigars for use and consumption by the genuine chiefs. The shopping list also contained items such as raw eggs, hot sauce, whipped cream, condoms, sanitary napkins, ice, and sheets of plastic for use uh, and consumption by the boot chiefs. Um, Hopefully they weren't eating plastic and stuff. Selectees were generally required to bring some cash, usually a hundred bucks. And I mean, this is eighties and nineties in new consecutive bills, along with a blank check to pay their fines. Most of the money was usually returned to the new chief after initiation. The money that wasn't returned was used to help pay some of the initiation costs. So instead of fundraising, they just extorted the new chiefs. During the early 1980s, many CPO initiation activities were evolving into events that resembled a cross between college fraternity house initiations and a crossing the equator ceremony. CPO initiations had morphed into activities that involved excessive, often dangerous use of alcohol, which I mean, arguably it's been that the entire time, along with mental and physical harassment. There were humiliating activities inflicted on selectees that could only be performed behind closed doors. In many cases, there was no lesson associated with initiation pranks. Uh, many genuine CPOs believed that selectees needed to be broken down in order to learn humility. <sighs> yeah. By then, many of the pranks and activities associated with crossing the equator ceremonies, such as mock trials, raw eggs, stocks, and ice-filled coffins, were firmly incorporated into CPO initiations. Chief selectees on trial were often coerced to drink truth serum made from like disgusting things, uh, concoctions of hot sauce, tomato juice, pepper, raw egg yolks, etc., CPO selectees were often intimidated by peer pressure to participate in activities that included cross-dressing, the use of sex toys, condoms, and feminine hygiene products as props. Uh, raw eggs were placed in the selectees' mouths or cracked open on their heads and bodies. Selectees were encouraged to swallow raw eggs, often by sucking them through a hole in the end of a condom. The smell of raw eggs is a memory that most chiefs who were initiated before 1990 will never forget. 
Uh, by the end of the 1980s, some CPO initiations were getting out of hand and attracting the attention of the U.S. Congress and the news media. However, there were positive things associated with CPO initiations, if you can believe that. Uh, the overall goals of CPO initiations were for brute chiefs to learn humility, learn to trust their fellow chief petty officers, create a common bond with other chiefs, and to be welcomed in the CPO mess. How any of those functions were accomplished based on all of the things described up to this point is beyond me. Um, but okay, I'll press the I believe button for the time being. Uh, there was also a lot of fun associated with CPO initiations for both the selectees and the genuine chiefs. Again, how CPO selectees often play pranks on the genuine chiefs. Okay, I, I did that. Uh, including the command master chief. There are photos and videos of boot chiefs during initiation in rather undignified circumstances with huge grins on their face. Uh, the most positive result associated with CPO initiations of the past and of today are the common bonds that exist between all chiefs who went through initiation induction or CPO 365. I, I like, I agree with that. Um, this is where you get into the, the weirdness of learning all of this history and wondering how this didn't just get deleted. Um, like, I get it. I wondered the same thing, especially when I reviewed this for the first time. I'm wondering it right now. Um, however, what it in, in the attempt to rescue it. And again, like I, how you're in that situation at that time and you're you're motivated to rescue this process. I don't fully understand. Um, there There is a part of it. I discussed this a little bit on the uh, the Tales from the Smoke Pit podcast with we were talking about submarine dolphins and, and how. A long time ago uh well for us a long time ago um the the process there was a little more like um what would now it, what would today be called hazing um it didn't all feel like hazing back then there's some of there were moments where it did um where it just felt inappropriate and unnecessary and i didn't see that it being productive but like just making things more difficult than they needed to be um treating you like you were an outsider. Uh, there were certain mechanisms that like arguably added some kind of value, like just making it, making it hard. Like, so doing anything like hard or facing adversity and overcoming it. Um, I think back in 2002, when I was getting my fish that there was definitely some counterproductive stuff, but there was a lot that looking back um, made me appreciate it a lot more once I had achieved it. Um, it's a topic that I want to spend some time on at some point, just like going through the thought exercise of, of whether or not there's any value in that kind of stuff and where the line is and what inappropriate looks like versus appropriate and, and such. Um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. Um, moving on to a new century, 2001 to 2008. Every McPond, starting with Plackett through Scott, was confronted with concerns about or actual orders to end CPO initiations from the chief of naval operations. Discussions to eliminate CPO initiations were generally kept out of the media and were not common knowledge within the fleet. Dwayne Bushy served as McPond from 1988 through 1992. Shortly after he took office in the fall of 1988, CPO initiations were held throughout the fleet. They were the usual reports of alcohol-related incidents. However, there were also reports of lewd, crude, and disgusting behavior relating to some CPO initiations that were made directly to the CNO by members of Congress. One of the most egregious complaints related to an incident in Groton 
because submariners that resulted in several recently initiated CPOs coming down with throat infections that were inadvertently spread to their family members. Uh, the cause of the infection was traced to unsanitary conditions during the CPO initiation as a result of a lewd event forced upon several CPO selectees. Mick Bushy was called into the CNO's office. Admiral Trost informed him that he was going to end CPO initiations. However, Bushy was able to present a plan to reform initiations uh, that the CNO accepted. The first step in reforming initiations was to enforce existing regulations that banned any selectee being forced to eat or drink anything or to perform any acts against their will. However, the main reform was to ban the consumption of alcohol by selectees during the event. Command mass chiefs were also to be held accountable for ensuring initiations did not violate Navy regulations. The reforms were not popular among all CPO messes, even though some CPO messes were slow to accept or simply ignore the McMahon's guidance. The reforms had begun. A few years, a few years later, uh, McPon Hagen faced the elimination of CPO initiations from two CNOs. Admiral Kelso and later Admiral Borda came very close to eliminating CPO initiations and replacing it with just a pinning ceremony. Hagen, like Bushy, was able to work out a compromise by continuing reforms and changes that saved CPO initiations from elimination. Over the following years, reforms continued. There were still events like Tailhook in 1991 that highlighted unprofessional activities and behavior associated with Navy ceremonies, including CPO initiations, scandals related to other traditional ceremonies such as crossing the equator, tacking on crows, and blood pinnings kept the pressure on to reform chief initiations or they would be eliminated. This is another biographical uh, story. Master Chief Electrician's mate, uh, John Hagen, he was a submariner, so who yeah. Relieved McPond Bushy in the fall of 1992. Uh, Hagen served as McPond for over five years. Uh, McPond Hagen continued the work of previous McPonds in reforming and improving the quality of CPO initiations. During his tenure, Hagen introduced and a, or a renewed emphasis on naval history and heritage in the CPO indoctrination course. CPO selectees were also expected to participate in physical fitness training uh, and be involved in civic and community events. It was during Hagen's tenure that CPO season began to be used to describe the activities that took place between the time CPO selection results were released and the day of initiation. Hagen also stressed that charge books were to reflect CPO pride in appearance and by the written entries made by chief petty officers. During this time, CPO selectees were required to learn and sing Anchors Away and to be able to recite the Sailor's Creed. How crazy is that? They just started learning the Sailor's Creed. Um, wow. Hagen strike. I mean, it's just like been ingrained in me since boot camp. Um, I mean, there's a time where no one cared until my first shore duty and then it got beat into me again. And then chief season did it again. And yeah. Um, hey, Hagen stressed the importance of naval history and heritage. He pushed to end meaningless, demeaning and unprofessional practices associated with CPO initiations. He recognized that traditions are not values and should be discarded when they no longer served a meaningful purpose. Which is kind of, you know, it's in line with the quote we discussed earlier where um, it's it's there's a lot of things that just needed to get thrown in the trash. And this is where you start to see that that happen over a long period of time. Um, I'm really shocked that these things didn't just get shut off. 
based on some of the stuff that we've we've covered up to this point. Um, so now we're moving on to CPO 365, which is effectively 2009 to present, sort of. Um, as the writing, as this document was written, it was still CPO 365. So we've transitioned into laying the keel, but you know, it wasn't out yet. So Jim Hurt relieved Mick Hagen in 1998. Uh, Mick Pond Hurt continued the efforts of previous Mick Ponds to improve the quality of chief petty officers. Mick Pond Hurt issued the first CPO initiation guidance of the 21st century to the CNO Mick Pond Spring Forum in the spring of 2000. The 2000 guidance was contained, uh, or it contained similar information that was included in previous McPon's guidance along with new information. There were specific duties assigned to the command master chief, which included briefing the selectees and spouses separately on the process and briefing the wardroom. CMCs were not allowed to be a judge on initiation day. Hurt encouraged the consideration of replacing CPO initiation with CPO transition or CPO rites of passage. The 2000 guidance also had the usual do's and don'ts lists. Uh, the do list included recommendations for organized physical training and the construction of guide on flags to be carried in formation, book reports from the Navy Heritage Reading List, along with voluntary civic activity were encouraged. Team building assignments such as fundraising and talent shows were also recommended. Eggs were authorized as non-consumable props. <laughs> um, there's an egg division thing that uh, I can explain um, that it still persists today uh, sometimes. I, I've seen it. It seems to be kind of phasing out in, in my experience anyway. Um, but they would, you you'd have to construct a division out of eggs and then you'd see so like decorate them and put little uniforms on them and you have to like, uh, build a vessel like, so like a ship or a submarine or whatever out of the carton. And then, uh, that part of it is kind of just for fun. Uh, but what they, what you get out of it is they would have you construct a division officer's notebook. So you have to like create this fictional division, um, and they usually will give you some kind of parameters on that. And then they'll just start saying, okay, uh, this guy, you know, sailor of the quarter, you need to write a 1650 and award for, for that. And then they'll like, you'll be at training and they'll like take one away when you're not looking. And you're like, Oh, this sailor's UA shit, mate. Like, what are you going to do? And then they make you go through the process of filling out paperwork, talking through like, go look up like what you'd have to do. And then at the next training, you have to like present that like paperwork to explain what you did about it. And then, you get trained on what you should have done about it because it's not always done correctly, but there's a lot of valuable tasks. And I mean, those tasks didn't, you know, require the building of an egg division, but, um, they, there is valuable training attached to the activity. Um, so yeah, uh, verbal and physical abuse, alcohol consumption beef. Oh, so this is the don'ts list. Uh, no hazing, no inappropriate or sexually explicit jokes or skits, which included uh, cross-dressing costumes, verbal and physical abuse, alcohol consumption before or during initiation and unsafe props were forbidden. Officers were not allowed to participate during the initiation. The only exception was the commanding officer, executive officers and flag officers invited by the CMC were allowed to observe. Videotaping of the initiation was not authorized, as well as any activity not tied to the CPO creed. Interesting that videotaping is not authorized. It's just like there's I, I'm not saying it should be videotaped necessarily because there are moments that are extremely vulnerable nowadays. I don't know what it was like back then. I wasn't there um, until 2011. Uh, but there are there's a lot of it that could be videotaped and it's it's like. 
I would argue there's value in that. Um, could be used for training, could be used just for review. I don't know. I just don't understand. The secrecy part is, it will always blow my mind. There are for sure times where privacy is needed. I just don't understand. I think privacy and secrecy are different. Um, the guidance also included a sample planning matrix for CPMSs that began with a kickoff meeting in April and ended with a khaki ball in September after initiation was complete. Um, so now we're into, I believe, Mick Pond Scott. Uh, I have a, just a quote on some of his stuff. So Scott also emphasized, emphasized the need for the chief's mess to develop sailors year round. So this is where you're getting into the implementation of CPO 365 phase one, not just during the CPO season. The 2004 season was extended by nine days by your scheduling selection board dates. It was now common practice for CPOMSs to participate with other local CPOMSs during the season. Uh, in fleet concentration areas such as Norfolk and San Diego, hundreds of CPO selects performed uh, or participated sorry, in events aboard the museum ships USS Wisconsin and USS Midway. Naval history and heritage education was now firmly ingrained as part of the CPO season. The USS Constitution in Boston became active in training CPO selectees so during like their heritage weeks, which is a huge deal nowadays. The MCPON guidance in the early 2000s was very similar to the guidance issued over the previous 20 years. The difference was that it was now generally being adhered to <laughs> by CPO messes. Uh, wow. Uh, MCPON Campa introduced CPO mission, vision, and guiding principles in 2007. So that's kind of wild. Like now, like I talk about mission, vision, guiding principles a lot and how great I think they are. Um, but you would. I don't know. You just kind of think of them like they've been around forever. Um, maybe that's just me being old. But they came out in 2007. Guidance, the principles included deck plate leadership, institutional and tech technical expertise, professionalism, character, loyalty, active communication, and sense of heritage. Those are all the, the individual traits on a chief's eval uh, to this day uh, as well. All events associated with the CPO induction season, as it was now called, were to conform to the guiding principles, which I think that was a large upgrade. I think that was a big improvement as far as guidance, because I just I don't think the CPO creed provides enough clarity where the mission vision guiding principles definitely do. In 2011, Mick Pond West, uh, who, you know, is the goat introduced the concept of see hopefully hopefully there's no other mcpons listening i love y'all too but mcpon west was a goat it just is what it is introduced the concept of cpo 365 i'm probably gonna get in trouble for that cpo 365 was a three-phase year-round training evolution designed to prepare first class petty officers for advancement to chief petty officer phase one was to begin the day after the cpo pinning ceremony and was to be used as the foundation for year-round training of first class petty officers phase one included training of the first class petty officers mess by the command master chief along with community service events uh, with the chief's mess and first class mess other combined team building events and physical training would include the wardroom phase two would be after the CPO selection board eligible list was released to provide additional training for board eligible personnel. Career development boards would be conducted on non-board eligible first class petty officers. And so this is just the exam result where it's saying you're either eligible to be go to the board and be reviewed or not. Um, to the career development boards on, on non-board eligible first class petty officers concentrating on what they needed to work on. Uh, to continue developing and then the training that began in phase one would continue during phase two uh, phase three would be uh, would begin when the selection board results were out i forgot it was called phase three god i'm old 
Phase three was nearly identical um, to what had previously been called CPO season. Phase three would end with CPO pinning ceremony after the final event. It was also emphasized that career development boards were extremely important and required for both non-selects and CPO selects once the selection board results were released. So that's where I'm going to wrap up the review of the actual content in a tradition of change. Um, Every time I read this thing, or every time I review any of its contents, um, one, I can't believe the season's still around. Um, however, I'm grateful that it is for what I believe it could be. I've seen it done in a way that if you detached the, the negative and non-productive history, I think a, a capstone event, when done properly, adds a ton of value. Um, there's a, a clarifying effect that happens when you're trying to finish like earning something and you have to do so by over overcoming adversity with a group of people that you just spent a long period of time going through adversity with as well. Uh, it's just there's there's something that happens that it's hard to articulate and I will probably prepare some kind of uh initiation chronicles type podcast on trying to to do that like trying to provide analysis on why there is value still um but i think it's i think the understanding that there there's potential for value the way that you do that is is <laughs> after i just spent over an hour uh detailing all of this negative history is it's like you need to detach from that and understand that you're almost creating a new thing, even though it's linked to like, that's what people get hung up on is like, you're, you're killing our, our history and heritage. Well, I just read it to you. And, uh, there's a lot of that that deserves to be killed. Like it just does objectively. So it's almost like you need to create a whole new thing. And that's where I, I get into the solutions I've discussed in the past, where I just think that you create a formalized curriculum, where it is year round, part of that is built in at NLEC already, um, the ELD courses and stuff. And then, um, but you could also, you know, do informal, like kind of modeled on the phase one and phase two that they just described of the original 365, where it's just this year round mentorship stuff. And I think that you just do it by leveraging things that already exist. You could do it by leveraging things like, like podcasts and audiobooks and books, right? Like that are already in existence and just do, uh, informal discussions every like month or whatever and touch base and do those types of things. And then just lean on the NLEC ELD curriculum. Um, and I, I wish they would put a lot more money and time and effort into expanding that capability um, just because I think it's it, the I think people deserve better than that, which I understand it's in its infancy. But like, yeah, I just there's a lot more that should be done. I just they don't have the money or infrastructure to do it um, yet. Hopefully that changes. Um, but I and then when you get to the capstone event, it's a formally structured thing with very clear red lines and very, very clear training objectives where the events are built towards accomplishing those training objectives. And those training objectives need to be like really intelligently developed and focused on what we actually need out of a chief, what we, what we say in the mission, vision, guiding principles. Um, it, it's something that I think you could create a master course document where 
all of those things are built in and then the the how you accomplish it piece is what a cmc and his mess or her mess sit down and define as far as like the EOD community is going to do it much differently than the submarine community, much differently than the aviation community, much different than the CBs, right? But it's all within the exact same boundaries and they're working towards the exact same training objectives. So if I were to fly to a CB base and, and hang out with them and go through the season with them, I may not see the exact same events happen and they may not be discussing submarine history, but I can see the tr- same exact training objectives being accomplished within the same exact boundaries. That's the finish line to me. Um, so to wrap things up, uh, lessons learned, right? Um, I made chief in 2011. I was the last year of what they called induction at the time, just prior to Mick Pond Stevens transitioning uh, the packaging back to the phase two is what we called it. it. I just read the phase three thing. So I'm not timeline wise. I'm not, I know at some point it became phase two and there was no like phase two was phase three. And we might've just been butchering the terminology. I don't know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> we got, but we got messed with. Um, I did a lot of wall squats. I spent a lot of time confused about why I was being yelled at. Um, and I had some really unfortunate interactions that probably crossed the boundary of professionalism, at least. But I was also lucky in a way. Uh, I had a really great mess and a really great cob. Uh, he was insistent that we be educated. Uh, everything needed to have a training objective. And, and I know this because with the same cob in place, I then ran the season. Uh, I think it was two seasons later. Um, and that's not to say when he wasn't physically present that uh, it went off the rails occasionally. Like it it sure did, but nothing I'd qualify as hazing. Like I would qualify as hazing at the time uh, happened though. Others probably would consider some of it hazing nowadays. Uh, And and I don't know that I consider those things all bad. Um, And again, I'm going to provide analysis on that later. Uh, I'm not sure how yet, but it's something I need to think on and I need to do some research on. So while there was a lot of it, a lot of that kind of stuff, even now there's negativity. There's things that happen that shouldn't. There's things that happen just with no training objective at all. So the selectees feel listless and lost. Um, and, And there were definitely a bunch of times while I was going through it and even now where I would look back at it, shake my head and wonder what the point was. Um, but what I can say is through that luck of the draw effectively, uh, is that I ended my time on that submarine extremely ready to be a chief. I wasn't perfect. Um, but I was prepared and I, a lot of it came from the way in which that cob and that mess treated the uh, initiation season or induction season at the time and and the final night events that we did um, with the region like that I just there was a lot of stuff that they could have trimmed a lot of fat but I got a lot of value out of it and I look back at it feeling really good about it and maybe I've forgotten even more negativity you know like I know I wasn't having a blast while it was happening and you can ask any of the guys that I went through with and I'm sure they would agree but um, 
but yeah, I, th- I think there's value there, like to the capstone event. I think there's a lot of value there because I've run the season more years than not um, since becoming a chief. Like probably I'd say three quarters of the I've only missed the last two, I think. And one of those is because we didn't make any chiefs like I had everything ready and I was planning on running it. But there's only been like two seasons in my entire in, my, in the decade that I've been a chief that I haven't run the season at whatever command I was at. And having done that, I can tell you a lot of value is added and it's added when it's done correctly. And that doesn't mean I'm perfect. I had a lot of help, but it's when someone's in charge, that's running it correctly. And in my opinion, I was running it correctly. Um, so like what, like what are the lessons we can take, uh, from this about our history and where we can go from here? So I've talked a little bit about it in through the lens of my experience, but, um, I go through, I go in depth on a lot of the stuff in the initiation chronicles, uh, check out for just for resources for some of the lessons learned, check those things out, especially the first, there were first episode. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned about how important first class petty officers are and how they're not, they're not that much different from chiefs in practice they're only different because we've created an artificial separation that most of which i don't think there's any value to um also uh check out a short talk with chief petty officers Uh, it's a early 1900s article from the blue jackets manual that i did a podcast on that's part of the teaching of the creed playlist um it's it goes into depth about like what i think a chief should be doing and it it's, seems like there was a lot more clarity back when chiefs had first come into existence. But prior, like the separation had been created at the time, but it hadn't taken root, if that makes sense. And so I think the clarity in that article, um, I think we need to get back to that. I think that there's a lot of things we're doing nowadays that have nothing to do with like meeting the needs of our sailors. Um, that's where I'm going to end it. This is already long and I've, I think I've already belabored a lot of these points in other podcasts, so I'm not going to continue too much. However, um, it's, it's the, the kind of punchline here is chief's initiation isn't exactly a tradition, you know, like it's, it's something that was, uh, it was kind of fabricobbled into a, into a tradition over time, but it was coming from a negative place at the beginning. And then it was salvaged. And the, like the only explanation I have for why these Mikpons were trying to salvage it is because in spite of all of the horrendous things that happened to them when they went through the process and how I'm sure they didn't ever want not only themselves to go through it ever again, but anyone else to experience what they experienced. There was that piece of having overcome adversity that somehow felt like it had value. And that's that thing that I'm going to drill down and I'm going to try to understand that better from like a human psychology standpoint. And then I'll put out some content either on Substack or here or or both that kind of dives into that is just like what is that why why despite the horrifying uh 
history of the Chiefs season? Was it even able to survive? And why did anybody even want to keep it around? Um, why am I even willing to defend it a little bit after having read all this? Like, it's just, it's hard to explain. Um, but I'm going to try in a later podcast. Um, but I think we can do better. And as I, I continue to be frustrated by the things that we do wrong, I still understand that there's a lot of value in doing it correctly. Um, even if that's creating effectively a, a, I mean, you could call it repackaged, but I would, I would say like a completely new capstone type process where there's the very formal boundaries and very hard and fast training objectives. Um, and with that, uh, <laughs> as always, if you need anything from us, hit us up. Don't come up to ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us. Don't come up to ship podcast. Or you can DM us on Instagram, Reddit, discord, uh, whatever you're fancy, uh, hit us up at D gets podcast. If you want to support us, there's a donate button on the website. Uh, you can also support us by going to D gets apparel.com, uh, pick up some Naval pride and heritage gear that you'll actually wear in public. It supports the expansion of the platform, uh, and keeps me from having to come out of pocket all the time, all the damn time, which I continue to do. Um, it's cause I love you guys and girls and everybody else. Um, but yeah, if you want to support us, those are some ways to do it. You can also go to dguts.substack.com and subscribe there. It's a small fee to get all of the content, but there's some free content there. Uh, there's a I'm writing articles now. Um, it's kind of like a training ground for me to write a book someday. And then also just uh, it's called dguts Thought Lab. And I'm just I'm kind of using it as a, a place to work through thought experiments on leadership and human psychology and in relation to leadership and stuff like that. And then there's a podcast where I read the article. So you can just listen to the audio if you don't want to sit there and scroll through reading it. Uh, and then I, I, on the podcast uh, portion, I do a little more of a deep dive into the content of the article um, and just my thoughts on it. So check that out. If you're interested, I'd really appreciate it. And that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship. <laughs>